it really does function as a pseudo-religion. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to today's episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley, and today we're going to talk with Neil Shinvey and Pat Sawyer about critical theory. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines like news, sports, pop culture, our business, all from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, well, of course, we're going to talk about the election. Hey everyone, I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. The 2024 election will be ramping up in coming weeks. Dr. Keithley, we're going to have some content on our blog, on our uh, podcast this year about how to think well about these difficult topics. But let's go ahead and set the table. How can Christians already be praying for the upcoming election? Well, we are entering into the primary season. And so the two major parties are going to select their respective candidates, and the Iowa caucuses are scheduled for next week uh, on January 15th, and then they'll be followed the week after that by the New Hampshire primary on the 23rd. And so between January and June, all 50 states are going to host either primaries or caucuses. Well, regardless of how deeply a Christian might or might not feel invested in the political process, The Bible is actually very clear that the upcoming election should, at the very least, uh, be a matter of prayer for every believer. Because Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior. Now, we're Americans, and we're living in a democratic republic. And as such, we believers enjoy a level of political agency that I think would have amazed first century Christians. And so by the process of voting, all of us are taking part in the governing of our country. And so when Paul tells us to pray for everyone and all those who are in authority. Uh, And when we pray this way, we are literally praying for ourselves. And so how should we pray? Well, I think we ought to pray for God's mercy on our nation, uh, that he will not deal with us according to our collective sins, but that he will show us a great grace and that he will give us leaders better than we deserve. I think we ought to pray that his will will be done because he is our wise, sovereign Lord, and his choices are always what's best for the advancement of the kingdom of God. I think we ought to pray for wisdom, because we live in a fallen world and we live in an age in which God's kingdom has not fully come. Thus, when it comes time to vote, we are always given less than perfect choices. I mean, no candidate is going to check all the boxes that we might want them to. And so we have to pray for God's wisdom as we enter into the voting booth. 
I think one thing that is not available to us is the option of simply opting out of the process. I mean, to whom much is given, much is required. I mean, the very essence of moral responsibility is the possession of certain powers and capacities. And by God's grace, uh, we live in a country and at a time in which we all have a voice and we all have a choice. So my prayer for all of us is that we believers will take the privilege of voting very seriously and that we will all prayerfully show up at the ballot box. May God be with us all as we cast our votes. We have a voice and we have a choice. I like that. I'm going to borrow that <laughs> and use that moving forward. Uh, just some, some wisdom there on how we can pray as we uh, already embark on the next election season. Before we get to our Christ and Culture conversation today with Drs. Neil Shinvey and Pat Sawyer, one reminder, stop what you're doing, subscribe to the Christ and Culture podcast, go ahead and rate it, give us those five stars, it won't hurt, and review it and share the episode with a friend. Uh, that'll go a long, long way to helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Now, Time for our Christ and Culture conversation. Southeastern understands that you have a strategic and valuable role to play in getting the gospel to your neighbors and the nations. That's why we offer over 40 degrees at the undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral levels to equip you to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Visit scbts.edu to learn more. What is critical theory, uh, and how should Christians think about it? Well, here to discuss today are Drs. Neil Shinvey and Pat Sawyer. Uh, they're the authors of a new book, Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for Church and Society. Thank you both for joining us today. Pat, Neil, we at the Bush Center have been acquainted with you both for several years, but many of our listeners perhaps are not. So uh, tell us a little about yourself. Start with you, Neil, and then Pat. Briefly, I'm a homeschooling theoretical chemist. I have a PhD from UC Berkeley in theoretical chemistry, became a Christian grad school, and have written a book on apologetics and now a book on critical theory with Dr. Pat Sawyer. Yeah, we're going to have to pause right there because a homeschooling theoretical chemist is not something you hear about very often. So unpack that just a little bit. Well, I'm trained in theoretical chemistry, but I quit my job at Duke about, I guess, 10 years ago now. It's been a while to homeschool our four kids. It's been great. And it's given me the freedom to you know, research, read, write books like the, these. Uh, and I've really enjoyed just being home with my kids and teaching them. I also tutor. So I'm teaching 11th grade in our homeschool co-op. That's excellent. Uh, fascinating. Uh, Pat, tell us a bit about yourself. Okay, so I'm a faculty member at UNC Greensboro. My master's is in communication studies and my PhD is in educational and cultural studies with a concentration in critical philosophy. My PhD is in the critical tradition. My dissertation was about social justice in higher education in the age of neoliberalism and the conceptual framework as part of the critical tradition. Before I got into the academy, which was about 10 years ago, I was a banker uh, for about 20 years. My last role, I was a senior vice president and regional director with a mid-level, mid-regional bank. And God had been pressing me to get into the arena of ideas more directly. So uh, I ended up retiring from the bank and 
about uh, 12 years ago, uh, sought out going to uh, grad school so I could end up uh, teaching in the academy. And it so happens that we did homeschool our kids uh, through the sixth grade, but my wife uh, was the one that was uh, primarily behind that. Uh, so Neil and I have that in common, at least tangentially in a way. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to ask uh, what made you to decide to write about critical theory, but I guess, Pat, this really is your area of your doctoral work. So I guess that's a, that's, that's a very natural thing, uh, particularly for you then, correct? That's right. I, I, when I was thinking about going to grad school, Ken, I, I wanted to pick something that, number one, was against Christian epistemology and the Christian faith to learn more about it, to be salt and light with it. And then also so also something that might dovetail with it on some level. And so biblical justice is a concern for real Christians, obviously. And so there's a social justice connection on some level. But I did begin to see some things that concerned me in the church in terms of the penetration of these ideas. And just uh, around that time, I met Neil, and he had begun to see some things, even in a more pronounced way, in the evangelical church around uh, these topics. And that, six or seven years ago, led us to getting together to start to speak and to write about uh, these concerns. Yeah, uh, Neil, when one thinks of a theoretical chemist, uh, 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 critical theory is not the first thing that comes to mind, but you've been involved in apologetics and apologetic ministries for quite a while. Did that have something to do with you you becoming involved with critical theory, or how did you become uh, involved with it? It's definitely not the result of me being a natural culture warrior. I'm very apolitical. I'm not interested in uh, the large way in, in politics. But I was seeing, uh, as an apologist, I was seeing that people were embracing a different worldview. And Christians were gradually deconstructing their faith. They were becoming more and more progressive, theological liberal, because they were onboarding ideas and slogans that had this underlying critical worldview. And we're seeing that all over the place today. It's become much more pronounced in the last, say, five years. And that we're trying to caution Christians that they cannot embrace these ideas. They're not neutral. They're not just purely analytical tools. There's underneath them a whole substrate of ideas that is going to lead you to apostasy if you truly embrace them. So we've used several terms already. Uh, we've talked about critical theory, social justice. I'm sure we're going to talk about critical race theory. I think for our listeners' uh, sake that we ought to start defining some terms. Mm -hmm. So what is critical theory? Let's define that first. So critical theory is an umbrella category today that encompasses many different critical social theories, including critical race theory, critical pedagogy, post-colonial theory, queer theory, intersectional feminism. And all of these theories seek to understand how power operates within society to produce oppressors and oppressed along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, and a host of other identity markers. So all these various critical social theories apply that lens to sort of a particular issue but they're all united within this intersectional framework today. So you can't really do critical race theory today without talking about class and gender and sexuality. You can't do queer theory without also talking about race and physical ability and colonial status. So they're all intertwined. And that's really why we press in on this idea that they are functionally a worldview. They're functionally a way to look at all of reality 
And that's why you see like recently you've seen signs like queers for Palestine, or uh, I saw a sign that said reproductive justice is Palestinian justice. Like, well, how are those issues yeah, related? Yeah. I, I was wondering that myself because I thought whenever I saw that there were the LBGTQ community supporting Palestine or Hamas, and I think, well, wait a minute, if Hamas ever got their hands on you, it would not go well. So how does that happen? So you have to read our book. We have <laughs> we have figures, and these are basically copied just from the literature, showing various oppressor categories, various oppressed categories, and then they hold the, all these categories like white supremacy, sexism, heterosexism, cisgenderism, ableism, all those oppressions from what are called interlocking systems. So you cannot merely be anti-racist; you must also be a feminist, anti-capitalist. Uh, anti-transphobia. I mean, Abraham X. Kendi says explicitly in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, that you cannot truly be anti-racist unless you also embrace LGBTQ everything. So it really does function as a pseudo-religion. And there are not just in terms of different oppressions, in terms of teaching you how to um, get access to truth. How do you know what's true? What's your personal experience? How is it relevant to your life? Uh, As Pat likes to say, it addresses issues of epistemology, how you know truth, phenomenology, your lived experience, ontology, what it means to be human. We're talking about a worldview. So you can't just say it's a narrow academic abstruse theory that only is taught in grad schools. It's it's really everywhere in our culture. Along those lines, I would just uh, mention that, Ken, that critical theory originated in the 1920s and 30s with the Frankfurt School with an effort to push back against traditional theory. So critical theory being opposed to traditional theory in this way. Traditional theory sought to kind of explain the world as it is. Critical theory wants to do more than that. It wants to offer a vision for society. And so therefore, those who are outside of power, as Neil mentioned, critical theory offers an emancipatory social justice effort to liberate those who have been disenfranchised and marginalized. And since social justice becomes part and parcel to critical social theory, when one begins to embrace critical social theory, now their life is engaged in a vision for society that has them being very active in terms of how they are responding to community, to culture, to society. And so that gets into the worldview implications as well, because your day-to-day life now is understood by moral claims that you are making and then action that you are taking to try to emancipate and liberate those who are marginalized and disenfranchised according to the ideological standpoints of critical social theory. So well, it you know you don't just have some idea in your head that you're playing with. No, you have a life that you are living mm-hmm. when you embrace critical social theory. Well, let me let me play devil's advocate just a little bit. First, critical theory, we would we would uh, say critical thinking skills uh, are are a positive uh, that yeah. that one needs to be able to be discerning and peel back the veneer and see how things really are that uh, and so absolutely uh, yeah so so how how th- does critical theory operate differently from what we've typically understood to be critical thinking skills great question in her book is everyone really equal robin d'angelo actually has a section called critical theory and critical thinking but you have to understand that is purely a semantic coincidence that the same words being used 
So critical thinking, absolutely. We should, you know, we question received claims like, well, how do I know this is true? As Christians, we ask, is this really in the Bible? Is that how God wants me to think about this issue? Or is it just received wisdom from my culture, tradition, whatever? That's critical thinking. Or even just in terms of science, you ask about scientific claims. Are these actually true claims or what's the evidence? That's critical thinking. That's fine. Critical theory does indeed have this uh, stance of skepticism towards received wisdom. It does do that. But it's why? Because it's assuming that the received wisdom is the ruling class imposing their views on culture to preserve their power and privilege. That's the assumption. There is no neutral knowledge. There's no objective realm where you can just know the truth is out there. They would deny that. That's why you must be skeptical of these claims, because really they're all just power plays. That's the sense in which critical theory is undermining and examining factual quote unquote knowledge. So very so Christians are like, there is knowledge out there, it's objective, and we have to be critical in thinking, well, what is actually true? What is simply uh, tradition? But critical theory says, no, all knowledge is really just sort of a power, a language of power. Truth itself is in the realm of power. So we are going to reject knowledges which promote the interests of the ruling class, whether it's men, whites, heterosexuals, Christians, etc. So again, very different approaches to the truth. That's very helpful, and I, I and and I think you're you're spot on. Let me play devil's advocate now on a second question. We as Christians would pretty much agree that knowledge is not neutral, are that the approaches to knowledge are not neutral, and that and that uh, there aren't there aren't just brute facts. The way we uh, understand them has a, a moral framework underneath it. In fact, whenever I hear some people describe uh, critical theory, I'm thinking, okay, didn't Cornelius Van Til already go through this, in which he says, you know, there are no there are no neutral approaches to knowledge. So explain how critical theory is different from, say, presuppositionalism, our reformed epistemology, our the more evangelical approaches that do recognize that knowledge very much is a moral enterprise. Well, I would I would say that critical theory and critical social theory in certain respects is trying to alert us and alert the reader of critical social theory that there are biases and there are presuppositions and pre-commitments that people bring to the table in trying to understand knowledge and understand epistemology. And it wants to attack what it appears to be the biases that have contributed to acceptable knowledge, hegemonic knowledge, dominant knowledge. Where critical social theory fails often is to recognize that itself has its own presuppositions and pre-commitments and biases. And it does not like to turn its attention to itself and critique itself very strongly. Now, it certainly in the scholarship will feign some of that and will indicate that it is reflexive, that it is fluid. And yes, it will make uh, acknowledgement of that. But when it really comes down to applying critical thinking to the biases and presuppositions and the beliefs that exist in critical social theory, that enterprise is, is wanting in any robust way. And so we would argue, we would agree that, yes, we have to be careful about our own biases, our own uh, intersectional standpoint, our own uh, class or our, our own ethnic backgrounds that may be imposing our particular felt perspectives on a certain body of knowledge or a certain text. 
We have to be mindful of that. Christians need to make sure that they're not committing eisegesis when they're approaching the text of Scripture, for instance. But uh, we we would argue that critical social theory needs its own reckoning in this regard because it makes strong moral claims that are universal, modernist in their uh, intrinsic character. They're making claims for all people in all eras, all the you know for all time, and to do that. Now we have to get underneath what those claims are saying and ask, well, is it really true, for instance, that heteronormativity is oppressive? Mm -hmm. That claim needs to be unpacked and problematized. And when it is, we just get to the fact that critical social theory has its own personal beliefs about what it thinks about sexuality. But that doesn't make it automatically true. And so we need to bring scripture to bear first and then evidence social science and, and reason to bear upon what critical social theory is articulating as its moral claims. Yeah, I think you're spot on in that it's it's been my impression that there's this remarkable lack of self-awareness uh, uh, in their works. Uh, they and and the dogmatism that is presented is positively medieval uh, that that one that one reads in their writings. So uh, you've done a very good job of explaining uh, critical theory. Thank you for that. Um, another expression that we have bandied about is social justice. And now if there's ever a biblical concept, it is the concept of justice. Um, and so we, you know, I think sometimes we find ourselves on push back on our, you know, the back on our heels whenever uh we hear the concept of of social justice, because who who's not in favor of justice? What is meant by social justice when they use that expression? And why do you find it problematic? Critical theorists have redefined the word social justice to mean the elimination of the social binary, where the social binary refers to that oppressor-oppressed division in society. So they believe there are systems and structures which perpetuate the power and privilege of the ruling classes, whether it's whites, men, heterosexuals, Christians, the able-bodied, etc. And social justice to them means overturning those systems and structures in order to, to reach the end goal of equity, where we have basically basically equal outcomes for all groups. When no society has, no, no uh, class, no group has the power to impose their values on culture, that is social justice to the critical theorist. Now, we wouldn't say the term necessarily has to be, that we would disagree with that definition of social justice. You can use the term in a positive biblical way. I, example I always use is in like the ESV study Bible in their uh, section heading for Exodus 22, I think, it says laws of social justice. And it's things mm -hmm. like care for the widow and the orphan and, you know, don't, don't harvest your fields to the corners. And they had that in the section heading, social justice. Now, they're not talking about critical theory. They're just using that as a section heading in the Bible. But what I would say is it's, we have to be very careful because clearly, if you type in social justice into the Google search bar, 90% of what you're going to be reading is going to be critical theory inflected. It's going to redefine that term from those perspectives that we would reject completely. So my preference personally is not to use that phrase at all. Pat tends to use it, but qualify it carefully and explain what it means. But definitely don't just throw it around as if it's one neutral meaning. It definitely is, would be careful with it. So if you don't like to use the expression social justice, what is your preferred expression? Biblical justice. Biblical justice. Yeah. Okay. Pat, you've used the expression a couple of times. 
Um, but you qualify it carefully, according to your co-author. So qualify it carefully for us. Well, I, I don't mind the term so much social justice because we're often talking about justice issues that are that are manifesting in the social world. And so it's okay to use the term in a qualified way from my standpoint, as long as when we get to definitions of social justice, that for the Christian, that we are taking a Christian epistemological approach to how we're thinking about justice issues. And sometimes biblical justice concerns do run uh, concurrently with typical social justice concerns, but often they do not. And for instance, social justice would be from a secular standpoint would be concerned about racism, saying that racism is wrong. It needs to be uh, overturned. Well, biblical justice would say the same thing. But when we start to define, well, what exactly is racism? Well, there will be some similarities and definitions, but at a certain point we will diverge. For instance, social justice, secular social justice perspectives will see racism manifested along the lines of disparities, a one-to-one conflation of disparities, racial disparities, equaling something unjust has happened. But uh, biblical thinking would go, no, that's not correct. Just because we have disparities, that doesn't automatically mean that something unjust has happened. So once we get into definitions, then we will see some divergence, certainly between biblical justice and social justice. And partly, and Neil is not given to this, but I don't want us to be superstitious about terms. That's another thing, Ken. Sometimes that can happen. And we don't need to just uh, freak out if a pastor behind the pulpit mentions the word social justice and mm-hmm. that automatically that sends some kind of uh, DEFCON 5 red flag signals about something that is 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 really alarming. We need to allow for definitions to, to take place to understand what somebody is actually getting at when they're using these terms. So, and and you've explained it so very well. Um, we, we are talking about uh, critical theory, social justice uh, from a critical theory perspective. And one of the things that you've ta- you've talked about is how uh, this type of thinking has infiltrated the church. So let's try to maintain a careful balance, just like you just said, in that we do recognize where the problems are, or we may highlight where some of the where some of the problems are are coming from. At the same time, we're not trying to, trigger people to where if they hear an expression, obviously, oh, my pastor has gone liberal. Uh, so how how has critical thinking uh, uh, and critical theory uh, affected the church and certain segments of the church? Um, let's first deal with that and then and then we'll go from there. So I think I'd point out quickly the three issues, race, gender, and sexuality. So a lot of racial discussion in the last five years, we People have observed the Great Awakening happening around the last five years when people began using terms like systemic racism, intersectionality, white supremacy in a very particular way. Uh, that kind of language is actually showing up in the church. It's just it's everywhere. We have examples in our book. Um, but oftentimes those phrases, people use them without thinking about what they mean. But if you actually look at the literature, they are defined in very technical ways that are undergirded by this critical thought. And it's, it's wrong. So like Pat said, for example, to say something like the U.S. is is racist, a racist nation, a white supremacist nation. What do you mean by that? Well, you're making assumptions that basically if there's if there is any racial disparities or even these deep racial disparities, it necessarily is only the result of discrimination. 
And that's not the case. Uh, but can, I mean, even Kendi again defines it that way. He says, if, if you don't think that all racial disparities are only the result of racial discrimination, then you're a racist. <laughs> we would just say that's factually not true. The NBA is 75% black, disproportionately black. It's not racist. It's because there are a lot of great black players. So and he's been confronted with that over and over again and, won't, and still won't backtrack and admit that he's just wrong. But then from there, and people think, well, a lot of evangelicals, I think, are pulled in because we are rightly aware of racism. We don't like it. And so we embrace that framing of the issue from, say, critical race theory. But then yeah, yeah, as, as a Southern Baptist, uh, we yeah. feel very sensitive about this. And rightly so. I think yeah. we can acknowledge our horrible racial history in the Southern Baptist yeah. Convention in the U.S. as a whole. But we get pulled in to this way of thinking the next domino to fall then is gender. So I see a lot of evangelicals talking about gender in terms of oppressors and oppressed. Women are oppressed by the church. Well, how exactly? You find out, oh, it's because they can't be elders. But wait a minute, wait, that's not oppression. And that's the Bible saying that. Like, you're saying the Bible's oppressing women? And they would say, yes, or at least your Western, white, patriarchal, Eurocentric interpretation of the Bible is oppressing women. Mm -hmm. uh, but there again, there's a disconnect between this definition of oppression being cruel and unjust treatment versus actually what's morally good and right according to God's design. You can't conflate the two. Then, of course, finally, sexuality. We see many churches, many individuals who've embraced LGBTQ affirmation, and a lot of that language is being used. They're an oppressed class. Heteronormativity is oppressive. The Bible itself is being used to oppress queer people. And again, all those dominoes, the first one to fall was adopting that language of CRT. And it, it go down the line, you can watch people's trajectories over the last five years. I just want to, lastly, I want to say that that is not um, something they've tacked on, say, to critical race theory. The earliest critical race theory documents say explicitly that racism, sexism, and heterosexism are all oppressive systems, which must be dismantled simultaneously. It goes back to 1989, the very beginning, the first year the term was used. You have Kimberly Crenshaw saying things like that. You have Kimberly Crenshaw, Mary Matsuda, Richard Delgado, Charles Lawrence in 1993, as one of their core tenets of CRT saying, it's committed to, quote, massive social transformation to overturn racism, sexism, and heterosexism, and classism, and whatever other oppressions exist. So this is part and parcel of their worldview. And if you reject that, then you're rejecting a core tenet of CRT. And that's a great answer. That That's very helpful. I have been involved in a study group or a research group about transgenderism and an evangelical response to transgenderism. And one of the things that... Uh, it was a couple of things I've noticed about it. One of which is is that there is this fundamental um, lack of coherence. It's it's internally incoherent. Uh, the very worldview, and nowhere is that shown up more clearly than in the discussion about transgenderism, because transgendered individuals are oppressed. Next thing you know, you've got um, boys competing uh, in women's sports, which many feminists rightly point out that if there's ever a situation that is unfair and perhaps oppressive to women, it is boys playing uh, in, in female sports. There's a lack of internal coherence uh, in the very system. One can't help but notice that. What's the end game? What, what, would, what would the 
millennial kingdom of critical theory look like? Where where are they headed? What do they hold up as the exemplar of 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 the kind of society or world they're trying to produce? Well, a couple of responses to that. Initially, you would hear terms like utopia, this notion that power now is evenly distributed among all. But that really is not the primary concern of critical social theory. While some of the scholarship indicates that, and at times I represent that, what really is desirous is a world that is given to a progressive ideological standpoint about a number of societal issues. And and so, for instance, uh, critical social theory is pro-queer theory. Queer theory is a critical social theory. So queer concerns are around the normalization of of homosexual uh, activity and perspective and lifestyle, and not just the normalization of it, but the celebration of it. Mm -hmm. And that leads to downstream policy societal issues like uh, being pro-gay marriage and wanting a pervasive allowance for gay marriage throughout society. And then that leads to a normalization of, of how to think about sex and sexuality and how to to, to think about age differences relative to sex, because queer theory is on a massive deconstruction campaign, including uh, age difference norms. And so if we extrapolate out to what a society that is based upon critical social theory will look like, that will mean certain strong ideological standpoints that those who are opposed to those standpoints are now outside of power. The the two things are not going to be reconciled. People that are pro-heterosexual marriage, for instance, and see its goodness from God, that it is a societal good and that it is rooted in God's goodness and is, and is an intrinsic good, and then those who radically disagree with that. And so there's going to be clash. And so what critical social theory would prefer, Ken, is a utopia based upon its own presuppositions, beliefs, moral claims, moral pre-commitments. And those are at stark contrast with what a number of people actually believe, particularly those who who believe in a uh, biblical Christianity and others who would see the wisdom in a Judeo-Christian perspective and then even a classical liberalism perspective. Critical social theory pushes back against uh, civil rights discourse. It pushes back against classical liberalism in terms of a, a political and cultural standpoint. And so while there's this push that we want just power for all, at the end of the day, critical social theory wants to silo power and tether power to its ideological claims. And that will put many of us on the outside and disenfranchised from that type of society. Pat, it's been great to talk uh, with you. Neil, what is the name of the book again? Critical Dilemma. Critical Dilemma, uh, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology. Implications for the Church and Society. Uh, Pat Sawyer, uh, Neil Shinvey, thank you so much uh, for talking with us today. Thank you. Pleasure. And now it's time for our segment on my bookshelf, in which our guests tell us what they're reading right now. So, Dr. Shinvi and Sawyer, uh, what's on your bookshelf? I'll start with you, Neil. 
So right now I am doing the reading list for my 11th grade classical conversations homeschool class that I'm teaching. So I, we're doing Shakespeare this year. I'm in the middle of Macbeth for like the 10th, 11th time, but it's great. I, it's my favorite, one of my favorite Shakespeare plays, but I've really enjoyed teaching it again. Um, I can't say Macbeth is one of my favorite, but at least it's better than Lear. Uh, and so, so great, great choice. Great choice. Pat, what are you reading? Okay, so I picked up again Studies in the Sermon on the Mount by uh, Lloyd-Jones, by mm. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Yeah. When I first became a Christian at about age 19, I went to quickly went to UNC Chapel Hill. And one of the first books that I got a hold of was Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, D., you know, Lloyd-Jones unpacking the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. And it revolutionized my thinking. It made me see the richness and the robust texture of the Bible. And he really unpacked things in a beautiful way. And it kind of set the mark in terms of how I was approaching my Christian faith and approaching the Bible. And so I happened to be uh, rereading that because it's Christmas time. And then I give this book out like tracks. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> at Christmas. Excellent. So, those are those at. are those are both excellent choices. Uh, well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, again, where can people buy your book and how can they follow your work? You can get it on Amazon at christianbook.com, barnesandnoble.com, brick and mortar, Barnes and Noble stores are carrying it, pretty much anywhere books are sold. And we have a website, criticaldilemma.com. You can see all the endorsements and promotional materials. Uh, and you can follow both of us on Twitter. I'm at Neil Shenvey and Pat is at Real Pat Sawyer. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating and a brief review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.